You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Steamheart. Chapter 42 The End and the Beginning Abigail After the Clendenin incident, James and I were granted a little rest and recuperation time, albeit unregard. First, we headed south to New Athens, only to find that Sheriff Mary Sampson had returned there a few weeks after their exodus, deposing that shitheel Caleb Buck and working hand-in-hand with their new mayor. Mary escorted us across town to the Williams residence. It stood vacant. Where are they? I asked. Sampson pointed over the way. House over there was a little bigger. Needed some fixing up, but we all pitched in. Who lives here now? You do. And she handed me a key. I held it up in front of me, dumbly. Why? Well, I wasn't too pleased with the way I left matters. And none of us here are happy with taking things that belong to someone else. She shifted anxiously, knowing what I was thinking. Their presence here suggested otherwise. We made a new rule that if someone comes back and asks for the house they lived in before, if they can prove it was theirs, we have no right to keep it from them. That's that's just how we live now. Helps us get by. I embraced her hard, quite surprising the serious and stolid lady. That night, I slept in my own old room. At least I did for a time. The bed was way too small and I felt strange. I moved to my parents' bedroom. And that felt strange too. But it was another place I could call my own. And I knew what to do with it. James and I stepped through the gate at Weirwood. And approached that wonderful old house. Now with a new telegraph wire leading away from it. It was early September of 1883, and we had only been away for 11 months, but it seemed like a lifetime. Both of us felt considerably older, and somewhat wearier, but a little wiser, too. Joanna and David were waiting for us at the doorway. Their 17th birthday had come and gone, and they were now so different to when we had stood upon these same steps a decade ago watching Catherine do her best to allay our mountain fears for the future. I looked back over the lawn as I held them to me tight and pressed the key to our parents' house into Joanna's hand. This was also where we had first met Frank and Annie. A telegram was waiting for us when we got inside. For the attention of Abigail Gray and James Penrose, stop. Things are going well at Sixlo Creek now. Stop. Channel's back open and zinc is being shipped out every week. Stop. Some raider activity, but we find where they are and go in hard. Stop. Little baby Jay's getting bigger all the time. Stop. We cannot thank you both enough for being there when you were and for doing what you did for us. Stop.
all my love and wishes to see you again someday. Stop. Tabitha Chorley. I had experienced uneasy nights thinking about those two. So this brought James and I some measure of comfort. James. Outside, as the sun set, we worked our way around to the back lawn, waved to Nathan as he returned to his hut, and before joining him, stopped beside the final resting place of Lucy Weatherfield. The little stone had worn through the years. It was in amongst more than two dozen others of our number who had gone over the last decade. But this particular resting place was of profound significance to the pair of us. You think Catherine regrets splitting us up like she did back then? We are both alive. Who knows what would have happened had she not done so. I never did thank you for finding that poem. Back when we buried her. It was beautiful. She looked down at Lucy's grave and saluted. Her hand shook, and a tear pushed forth from her eye and ran down her face. She loved you very much, I whispered, and gently took her in my arms. I know. And with that, standing in this sacred place, her cheek pressed down against my shoulder for the first time since she was 13 years old. Abigail Gray cried her heart out. (laughs) Truth I sat with Harry for an afternoon again. She was mentally absent almost the whole time, but I let her be. We were in our parents' house, and all was far too quiet. Around four o'clock, Harry's eyes focused, and she glanced over at me. That Mr. White? Yes. I hate him. Harry, he's a very dangerous man. He has spies everywhere. You can talk like that to me here in private, but when we're both at work, the official line is, he's doing his job for America. He's a bastard. She snarled. And I'm going to get him. I did not know what to say. I was frightened for my sister. And for myself. Raven. On October 28, 1883, President Ulysses S. Grant finally passed away, leaving Sean Riley, who had been de facto leader of the nation for many months while Grant was ailing, officially our 19th president by default. On October 29th, Joseph Tremaine announced he was stepping down from the upcoming presidential election. On October 30th, Tremaine announced his role as President of the New Confederate Territories of America. 
In his words, the people had spoken, and they had taken grave exception to the parts of the cartographer's handbook and the official RSA amendments that stipulated what was to be done with those who did not wish to unify. On October 31st, All Hallows' Eve, at 12 noon, a second civil war was declared. Wendigos were still occupying our cities. We had breached the peace agreement struck between Thomas Arlington and Seth, which was never an official legal position anyway. So now the army was divided between taking back the cities and defending contested territories from the new Confederates. The two civil wars now stood as bookends, enclosing a strange period in American history. Not one of peace, but of loss and fear, confusion, betrayal, madness, and a compulsion to run and find safety in a land where it could never truly be assured. But this window of years had also been a hatching ground for another notion, not simply hope. Hope is a pure infection, increasing as it spreads between people and diminishing as it is stamped out. This was more complex than that positive pandemic, contingent on unified action in order to even exist at all. There is no word that encompasses it, but a shared respect for benevolent rationality is a passingly adequate descriptor. The inkling that we would do what was best for everyone in the long run, setting aside our differences, prejudices, and personal fears to facilitate this. It was an exceptional span of years to be a part of. Not hope, but the best conditions we could muster to cultivate that precious malady. And now it is clear that while we looked to the wise to lead us, far too many within our number mistrusted that wisdom, rejected it, gladly hated it. To these people, cruel prejudice is a survival tool. Their fears too manifold and overwhelming to set aside. Their personal interests too jealously guarded to sacrifice. Their leaders just as bullish and petty and self-invested. They are immune to hope. I recall holding my head in my hands and wondering what all this was for. If our disagreement was so fundamental, how could we ever come to an accord with a people so divided from us? separated by distance, by thought, by belief, to the point that their unwilling assemblage would rather agree unanimously to no consensus at all. We are looking straight into the eye of the madness inherent in governing the ungovernable. What it will require from those of us with the head and heart for that benevolent rationality will be to work all the harder to overcome our trifling differences in order to stand stronger together and, so unified, to challenge those who seek only to take for themselves and who refuse to negotiate on even terms. It is to be a war on two fronts that, no matter the outcome, will change the world entirely. It was November 3rd, 1883. 
the evening before Abigail and I were to head north again in Thundercloud to meet with Commander Calvin Wilson and close the northern door. A quiet basement bar had been reserved in the centre of the city. As the two of us sat there, Pines entered with Donald in tow. Harau appeared, gently carrying Harry down the stairs, to then set her in the wheelchair which Truth and Miguel had brought after. And finally, the late arrival, Raven. This man had only just pitched up at the capital, having made a pilgrimage back the way we had come. He had taken his time and spent many long nights writing. In the wild, in civilization, in the places in between. And now at last he was back, and we could finally reminisce together. As we sat at several tables, pushed close in the centre of the room, Raven laid down a series of filled, leather-bound journals in front of us. Tiger's eye. Read Hurao aloud as Miguel leafed through the story of how the pair had first encountered one another. Secret rooms. Said Abigail. Arlington. Murmured Truth. Raven then gingerly laid the final, much longer one in Harry's lap. Steamheart. She breathed. You don't have to read it yet. Raven muttered. A lot of it will be very painful. Same with Arlington. Harry nodded in solemn agreement. One day, though, she said, and I understood her expression here better than any I had seen before. All of us did. Major Butler won't be joining us, announced Truth. But he wants you all to know he's fine. He used the word fine. I inquired with worry. Truth nodded sadly as we all twisted up inside. Raven picked up his glass. I'd like to propose a toast. To the fine people I had the brief pleasure of traveling alongside. Our journey helped me realize a few things about myself. Me too, Miguel said. And me, whispered Harry. We know how to use these, I said, tapping my patch. That was definitely not for nothing. We closed three doors. We will close more. And maybe open some more. Abigail nodded. Make some new friends. She gestured towards Harau and Miguel. And maybe when that's done? Breathed Pines. Journey out into our own world and see what's there. To friends, said Raven. I've never known friends like you before. Announced Harry quietly. If I was going to build a family... These would be the components I'd need. To family, agreed Harau. Those here, added Truth. Those who were here, and those who will be here. We raised our glasses. Oh, I do have one thing to show you all before James and I go, said Abigail, fishing into her bag, past her handbook, past the dime novels on Harry and Annie and herself. Eventually, she deposited a square package wrapped in brown paper upon the table. This arrived at my lodgings today. I figured we could open it here. It could explode, I cautioned. Well, it's addressed to both of us, and the note reads, I hope this will help you. And see the handwriting? She held it up, and my heart skipped a beat. It was the same looping letters which I had pored over for those many months. Professor Johann Krieger. I figure if he wants to kill us to correct his mistake, we may as well take the bait and company. 
That way at least these eyes go to someone trustworthy. Immediately, everyone but me shuffled their chair back a few feet from her. Oh, y'all are all brave as lions. You want me to open it or not? Please, Captain, said Pines, craning forward from his spot of presumed safety. Abigail slowly and deliberately ripped away the paper to reveal a matching box to the one we had found that night at the house on Briar Hill. The key was mercifully tied to one handle with a delicate royal blue ribbon. She slid this key inside the lock housing and turned it with a click, then lifted the lid to reveal, as most of us had hoped, another orb. It was a similar blue to the ribbon, swirling rivers of light inside. It quite took the breath away. Don't touch it. He sent it to us. We have no idea what it does. Well, we won't know ever unless somebody tries it. And we have literally been told it will hopefully help us. We also don't know what the price will be. I interjected, pointing back and forth at our eyes, then nodding towards Harau, who sat cross-legged, studying us. We could lose something really significant about ourselves. Before I had even finished, Abigail reached out and wrapped her fingers around the orb. <gasps> there was a blinding flash and all of us shielded our eyes. The air smelled of steel and fire. And when our vision cleared, Abigail was sat where she had been before. The woman looked no different and blinked, checking herself. Still only one eye. She could still speak, still laugh. She felt no stronger, and nothing in her mind had seemingly altered. How do we know what it has done to you? asked Miguel. I suppose, Abigail reasoned, we'll just have to wait and see. just finished listening to Steamheart, written and directed by Alexander Shaw. Abigail Gray, Lee Yinglong, Rebecca Wolverton, and Yagana, performed by Sharon Shaw. Annie Oakley, Carmen Santos, Maggie Struther, and Harry Arlington, performed by Loretta Saylor. Jeremy Pines, Thomas Edison, Johan Krieger, Francisco Delgado, and Dr. Julius Kaufman, performed by Matt Wardle. Frank Butler, performed by Spencer Lieb. Harau, Bryce Tiller, Tabitha Chorley, Merlane, Mary Sampson, and Sarah Arlington, performed by Maureen Foley. Truth Arlington, Bessie Flynn, Rose McClellan, Yagana, Gwendolyn, and Florence, performed by Theo Lee. Catherine Holloway and Consuela, performed by Maya Santandrea. 
Henry Jackson and Buford McClellan, performed by Jacob Newburn. Jasper Boomhauer and Virgil, performed by Lauren Grieve. Footman, performed by Matt Ramsey. Donald McTavish, performed by Derek Ritchie. Dutch Van Tassel, performed by Lou Fernandez. Sarah Ellen Mosey and theatrical Catherine Holloway, performed by Haley C. McCarthy. Dale McClellan, theatrical Preston Beauregard, and Bateman, performed by Matthew A. Siebert. Luisa Delgado and theatrical Abigail Gray, performed by Debbie Morse. Theatrical James Penrose, performed by Pascal Dooley. Theatrical Bandit Leader, performed by Evan Pringle. Peron and Hunter, performed by Keddie Bredemeyer. Yang, performed by Blaine Stewart. Jay Hewn, performed by Paul Hikari. Chester, performed by Dan Mayer. Adam, performed by Lyra Shaw. And James Penrose, Raven, Miguel Alejandro Delgado, Thomas Arlington, Guard Captain Harris, Nikola Tesla, John Hillerick, Toshiro Yagyu, Nathaniel Curtis, Conductor, Jonathan Oakley, Carl, Hunter, Theatrical Narrator, Major Domo, Lord of Brimstone, The Bear, Bartender, Samson, Murphy, Ulysses S. Grant, The Fire Lion, Dark Panther, Seth, and Mr. White. All performed by Alexander Shaw. Fire Lion, Meltdown, Oakley Sonata, Off-Road Warriors, and Cowgirl Soldier, especially composed for New Century by Gil Haim Steinberg. Flare, Last Dawn, Apocalypse, Wasteland, and Olympus, composed and performed by Ross Bugden. Emotional Choirs by Carlos Estella. The Steamheart Theme, Where the West Begins, by Ferenc Hegedus. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson. One Wild West by Edward Blakely. Agent in Shanghai by 1M1 Music. Arrival by I. Sazanov. Emotional Powerful Music by Mattia Cupelli. Silent Winter by Running Wolf. Brandenburg Concerto, Sinfonia and Cello Suite No. 1, composed by Johann Sebastian Bach. Divertimento, composed by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Claire de Lune, composed by Claude Debussy. Waltz, composed by Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. Canon in D major, composed by Johann Pachelbel. Battle Hymn of the Republic, composed by William Steff, James E. Greenleaf, C.S. Hall, and C.B. Marsh. Semper Fidelis, composed by John Philip Sousa. All other music, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes provided by Tabletop Audio. Artwork by Antonio Torresan. New Century is funded by our loyal supporters on Patreon. The story of this world continues in Uncivil Outlaw. And Harry Arlington will one day return.
Director. Oh, Jesus Christ, what, what the hell are you doing in here? Forgive my intrusion. I needed to come straight to where the information was warmest. And this is a nice office. Please get out of my chair. If you want to book a meeting with me, call ahead. I don't give a shit about your clearance. I won't tolerate rudeness. I can respect that. What do you want? I'm making plans for the holidays. You know how busy things get. And this evening I need you to tell me absolutely everything your agency has regarding the endowments and developing abilities of Dr. James Penrose and Captain Abigail Gray. Thank you.